everyone. Welcome back to... <clears throat> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Good opening. <laughs> I'm totally going to redo that. Uh, <laughs> for some reason, there's something caught in my throat. I got to take a drink. <laughs> hey, welcome back. Fuck. There's so many cold opens Dugan does. I'm just like, keep that in. Please keep that yeah, in. I know, right? like, No, that's fine. I'm like, no, 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 it's funny. Just keep it in. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> you bring us in. I'm fucking. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, we cut all this out. Yeah, um, there's a clip I saw, dude. It was like a news report, dude, where a guy cut. It was like, all right, we're going to cut to our reporter. And it cuts to the guy in his house because he's in quarantine. And it, like, right as they cut to him, the guy's like audio cuts or something. Four on his side, so he can't hear it, but not their side, so they can still hear him. So he's yeah. just staring for a bit, and he goes, shit, shit, fuck, <laughs> oh, fuck. And, and it, it just cuts away from him to the main news reporter, who's just staring for a solid, like, minute in silence. He goes, all right, then. The guy goes, like, I don't know how to recover from this. He just exactly. live he on just air. just have to move right on. <laughs> but, like, the like other guy... The other guy didn't realize it didn't cut away from him, so he just went to Karen's again. It's just like, oh, the guy's reaction so great. Oh, man. Okay, uh, I think that helped me. I think I can do this. All right. <laughs> you want to do it this time? Yes. All right. <clears throat> hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Almost Better Than Silence. I'm your host, Doug Coleman, and I'm here today with the other co-host, Brennan McCullough, and it's another bonus episode. We're here doing our Best of Game Developer Interviews, Volume 2. How are you doing, Bren? Doing great. We definitely didn't fuck up the first take. This is definitely the first oh, take. God <laughs> damn it. You did not need to mention that. Because now, at some point, we're going to have to play this at the end or something. But I really, after, I consider myself a veteran podcaster, but then things We've like this still enough. occur. Yeah. Uh, but no, I totally fucked up the intro early on, and we will play that for you at some point, apparently. Listen, sometimes you're just like a 35-year-old man and you're just like getting ready for work and you're just like, wait, how do I tie my shoes? Like, it happens sometimes. Like, you just blank out and forget yeah. and you fuck up. Uh, but I'm doing good. It's I do enjoy that this is like a specifically catered to just the game dev interviews we've had because like, I mean, we've said it before, we haven't had one in a while because it's difficult to arrange with the time zones and uh, people are busy, especially with some NDA stuff. I know uh, a friend of mine works for a large company and uh, one of the talent that works for them just took a selfie in an area with a lot of confidential information and posted it all online for a minute. And then they're in big fucking trouble with oh, their company no. now. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff, especially with games now and um, stuff like that with NDAs where it's like, Ooh, hush, hush secrets. Like sometimes it's be- like an interview is good for uh, publicity and PR. Sometimes it's not worth the risk. If you know, you're sending out someone who's not great at keeping secrets or keeping their mouth shut or not talking about the confidential information. Um, so yeah, sometimes game devs specifically are harder to get interviews from than just like a random celebrity or like a host of anything. Totally. So it is a challenge and it's cool going back and revisiting the ones we have gotten because we've gotten some cool ones, especially in this episode. Or oh my God. Revisiting. Definitely. Uh, this one takes us back four years ago to 2016, <sighs> uh, episodes 102 and 117, uh, Hairbrain like Schemes college. and Chuck Carter. Uh, so yeah. No, it wasn't. What's Sorry, <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I was back when I was in college." No, I was, I was out of college. I'm just having a stroke over here. Don't mind me. 
But yeah, please sit back and enjoy uh, these clips from those episodes, and we'll be back with some commentary. I'm your host, Brendan McCullough, here with Doug Coleman, and we have a special guest today, Mitch Gettleman, who is one of the co-founders, I believe, of Hairbrained Schemes. That's correct. I'm the co-founder and the studio head. Awesome. Yep. And if... You guys don't know the name. You definitely know the products. They've been working on the Shadowrun franchise and turning that into a game series. Uh, but upcoming more recently, up uh, this summer, I believe, actually, you have Necropolis coming out, which looks, it, uh, frankly, Mitch, it looks like it's going to ruin me and Doug's lives. Yeah. Like, this is all we'll be doing. Honestly, That's actually my goal. <laughs> it's, it looks like the greatest game of the year to me. Like It looks so unique, and I'm so ready to just get, like, fully blown addicted to that it looks excellent i'm really excited wow. to talk about like the the like the nitty gritties of uh the development stuff all right cool well thanks very much for the positive words uh oh, of you course. Know, the team's working really hard on it so well, uh, yes. i hope it lives up to your expectations <laughs> it always makes my palms sweat when people <laughs> tell me how, how much uh how much they like anything i'm working on well, I guess here's the first couple of questions for you then. Um, how long of, like, of a development phase have you been working on Necropolis specifically? Well, it's hard to say just in a number because, for example, we had two guys, uh, Dennis Detwiller and uh, Chris Koner, who uh, were the uh, design lead and project lead slash lead engineer, working on that for th- the concept and prototype for about three months, sitting alone. And then once they had that, uh, we added Mike McCain uh, and Chris Rogers as art directors to take it to the next level, you know, and that took a couple months. And then, you know, and to develop the look and stuff. And then, you know, after that, we go to the next level and add more team members to get it to what we call vertical slice, where we can play a, a slice of gameplay to get the sense of how the game really plays, etc. And then you finish pre-production with a slightly larger team, then you go into full production. So end-to-end, maybe two years. Wow. Sounds about right, end-to-end. Wow. But at peak, you know, we've only been at peak for probably a year, uh, peak in terms of the number of people on the game. Okay. Oh, okay. Jeez. I love the art style specifically. It's... Uh, I. I don't know how to describe it, but it's very. We use the word minimalist. Minimalist, yeah, that would yeah. be right. It's it's great. Uh, well, I love it. I love it. And what's great is uh, you know the the teamwork between Chris Rogers and Mike McCain, where Chris really took the lead on the uh, characters, and Mike took the lead on the environments, and then they mixed and matched. And they're you know they're great guys to work with. And then uh, Mike went off to. Uh, start Battletech while Chris, you know, once we got into production, took the, you know, was taking the game all the way through to the end. Yeah, but Battletech is, I did, I've, I'll be frank with you, I've never played it myself, but I didn't realize how massive it is. I know you started out in, like, pen and paper games. Yeah, I did. A, and switched over to video games. Um, A but, long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe around the time you were born, but yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's a true story. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, Battletech is massive, uh, you know, and as audiences, you know, you know what happens, they grow away from things, things sort of fall out of uh, fashion and that kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, giant robots touch a nerve in a lot of people, <laughs> you know, it's just like they're giant robots, man. 
But more than that, Battletech, the cool thing about Battletech is it's got, you know, 30 years worth of amazing lore behind it. A lot of, t- you know, it's sort of a shared universe that a ton of people have added value to. And so we're really going to, with our Battletech game, you know, make the best turn-based Battletech ever made for sure. And I say that very confidently, having played the prototype of it. But uh, also just the game that really shows off why Battletech and why the Battletech universe and the Mech Warrior universe is so cool. Awesome. Yeah, yeah you guys actually kickstarted it and got a ton of donations. Uh, yeah, we had uh, over 40,000 backers Jeez. on our Kickstarter. That's excellent. Yeah, which was really badass. And I think, you know, <laughs> you can look at the dollar amount, you know, because we raised all up maybe uh, three and a quarter million dollars when all is said and done. Wow. But the money is far, far less important to me than that 41,000 or so backers that we got. That's what really means a lot to us. Definitely. Because, you know, making games is stupidly hard. It's just ridiculously hard, and, and until you've actually done it, you don't understand just how stupid it is and how dumb we are for having gone into this industry in the first place. <laughs> but, but it's different when you do a Kickstarter because knowing that you have enough fans to fill a football field rooting you on and wanting your game when it comes out it's a really different experience. You see what I mean? For a lot of games, you work on it, you work on it, and finally you announce it, and people go, meh, you know, <laughs> oh, or something like that. Here, we know all the way through development that people are excited and waiting for it you know, and really want it and can't wait to get it when it comes out. And that's, a, that's a really big deal when you're working as hard as you do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and especially with something like Battletech that's been going on for, like you said, 30 years. Like, you have people that played it when they were kids and now with this new game they're able to introduce it to their kids and it's that is exactly what i'm hoping that's exactly what i'm hoping and i and you know with games like XCOM out there now that are broadening people's perception of what a turn-based game can be you know i'm really hoping that a sort of a, a new generation of people come to BattleTech Have you noticed troubles with doing a roguelike game where like, it changes every time? So is it hard to kind of troubleshoot if something goes wrong with a certain scenario? Like, Sort of, yeah. It, actually, that came up today in a meeting I was in. And that somebody said, hey, have you noticed that this character isn't in the game at all? <laughs> this enemy isn't in the game at all? Like, no, because it's a randomized game. So I never know exactly what I'm going to get. I just... I assume I get it next time, but yeah, I've been playing all week and I realized, oh, well, that enemy isn't in the game. So it's a test nightmare. Uh, yeah, I wow. Watch. <laughs> oh, man. But I, I know for anyone who's listened to the show long enough, they know I'm woefully addicted to all roguelike and roguelike games. They're, I, I just discovered them recently within the past few years and I've, with Binding of Isaac, notably, I've gotten right. over 350 hours in like, nice. both games. <laughs> Well, I say nice, but you're scaring me. Just <laughs> yeah, that's cool. It, especially, no, my son's a huge Binding of Isaac fan. Yeah. Oh, it's great. And especially for a game like that can last anywhere between five minutes to half an hour, racking up yeah. that many hours. Yeah, what's interesting about Necropolis now we're finding is we've been reporting the playtime as, you know, if you know what you're doing, you could make it all the way through in four to six hours. I'm not sure we're telling the truth there. It may be like six to eight. Okay. Um, you know, and that'll change 
between now and Chip. And of course, five minutes is always a possibility. <laughs> I am living proof of that. <laughs> I'm probably the worst player in the studio, uh, and I play every day. And, uh, and I have yet to beat the game. Oh, wow. Sometimes yeah. you just need that lucky run where you just start off with a good item. I had it yesterday, and then something bad happened. I thought, oh, this is it. Yep. <laughs> it was not it. Oh, man. <laughs> then you get a little but, cocky and die at the first boss. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. It's like, uh, well, I can take these guys. And it's like, oh, crap. <laughs> so, And then there was profanity and gnashing <laughs> of teeth. and oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it can get pretty ugly around here. But there are other people that just kick the game's ass, so. Yeah, that's a. I've. This might be the first roguelite I've seen personally that has co-op that you can do with other players. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. cool. Yeah, we think so too. It was surprising. You know, the game is fun, mm-hmm. right? Single player for sure. But then when we started playing, you know, like, hey, should, what do you think about co-op? Then you know, our new uh, networking engineers like, uh, hang on a minute, and you know, I say hang on a minute, but you know, a short time later, we were playing a prototype of it. It's like, oh. That's cool. Wow. <laughs> we should ship that. <laughs> How hard of a thing was that to accomplish? I mean, like, that just, that sounds ridiculous. And, and like, was, is Unity easy to, like, accomplish that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, he didn't have any big problems with the coding side of it. It's more about the design slash balance side of it. So, obviously, the game scales up based on the number of players you have, mm-hmm. right? Uh, to the right level and what that right level is. I don't know. We'll know by the time we ship. But it's also things like, well, what happens when the players go different directions in this labyrinth? <laughs> you know, oh, they lose each other. Okay, all right, we need a feature to, you know, help them find each other. Okay, what if somebody dies? How does that work? Well, all right, you can resurrect somebody, you know, a teammate and things. Oh, but do they resurrect at full health? No, they shouldn't resurrect at full health, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, and also the cool thing about our co-op is it's joint in progress too, right? So I could be playing and then get a, you know, a request from you to join the game. And I'm on, I don't know, level five and you're on level one. So you come in with all of your level one equipment into my level five game, <laughs> right? And yeah. I have to protect you for a while until you can get some equipment, you know, that makes sense. Now, maybe I'll drop some stuff for you, you know, because you could do that with our inventory system. You carry, you know, it's kind of like uh, Halo in mm-hmm. a way, in that you carry two weapons at a time. You can carry two weapons, and you have to be judicious on which weapons you carry. And you could also carry up to two left handed things, like a sword or, a, or I'm sorry, a shield or a magic wand, which is a ranged attack, or a, or a crossbow, which is another ranged attack. But, you know, you have to make those decisions. So dropping something. You know, it's kind of a big deal for a friend. And then the other thing about co-op is, well, uh, friendly fire is on. Oh. So you can't just run and button, man. <laughs> You'll kill your friend. That's actually awesome. I like when the game is oh, legitimately challenging like that. And then the other thing is, you know, you open a loot chest and a suit of armor comes out. Okay, who gets it? Which of us gets to pick that up? You know? So first come first it, serve, <laughs> you know, and I, I, you know, it's funny. I shipped a game called Mech Assault, which was the first multiplayer game on Xbox live. Mm-hmm. And it was a bat, it was a battle tech giant robot game. You know, it had a, it had some really fun multiplayer, but when you blew up an enemy mech, you know, it crapped out a whole bunch of loot. And then, you know, everybody's running to steal the loot. And that was part of the, that's just part of the game. Yeah. So it's, it's a co-op game. 
but you can fuck with your friends. <laughs> awesome. But yeah. it's friend request only, so it's not like we have a matchmaking service. So, oh, okay. you know, if you're going to be playing with somebody, you know them and you know what kind of a jerk they are. You know them personally and can punch them off game. Off game, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. yeah. I don't know if me and Doug can play friendly fire. That might cause a lot of problems. You see where yeah. I'm going with this. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I have a quick question, though. What would you say are like some of the biggest influences for Necropolis? Oh, that's easy. Dark Souls and Spelunky. Excellent. Awesome. When when the team pitched the game to me and my partner, Jordan Weissman, who was the uh, creative director of the studio, or chief creative director of the studio, you know, they said the, the pitch was, what if Dark Souls and Spelunky had a baby? Oh, I and love the it. The answer is Necropolis. So <laughs> those were the key influences. And then from a you know visual point of view, you could look at Windwalker and stuff like that. I mean, you, you, you can see some of the visual uh, inspirations that came out of it, too. Yeah, that style is just excellent. You say minimalist. I'd say like almost like cel-shaded. It just, it just looks mm-hmm. so beautiful. I'm excited. Uh, excellent color palette going on there. Yeah, and wait, I mean, there's just, you know, the deeper you go, there's more stuff in it. Because it's not just like... The necropolis is not this simple pyramid that you go down. It's kind of like this uh, pocket dimension that uh, the Archmage Abraxas has just scooped up different places and put it in. It's sort of like his personal museum. So all of a sudden, right in the middle of the necropolis, there's a swamp. Uh, (laughs) Right with walls. I noticed you got a ton of like awards and like editors' choices and community choice awards from like packs and stuff. So yeah, already people are already really excited. Hell about yeah, Metropolis. yeah, I'm excited about E3. I'm hoping we get noticed there. Yeah, uh, that is that kind of like the big like make or break showcase for you know games and development. No, the people that run E3 like to think so. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the truth is, I hate this part. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, the truth is I spent a fair amount of my personal time on PR and marketing, Um, even though I'm a game developer. uh, You know, you got to once upon a time, all we did was make games (laughs) and then we give them to the publisher and the publisher would, you know, make them go. That kind of thing. And what was great is they were in shrink wrap. You didn't even patch them. If you patched a game when I started in the business, it was a failure. It was like an admission that you screwed up. And my bosses used to get pissed at us. Now there's a patch for some games every week and that kind of thing. So it's just a really different lifestyle and stuff. And, you know, truthfully, I just want them to make games. (laughs) it's, it's uh, It's a tough business these days, especially for an independent like us. Absolutely. Do we have a release date? Uh, Brent mentioned before we got on that it got pushed back a little with the PS4 and Xbox One release. No, we don't have a new release date that we've announced yet. Okay. It'll be this summer. Oh, It'll excellent. be this summer. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm, everyone's really excited. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we are, too, you know, because we got more time for <laughs> polish and bug fix. Yeah. <laughs> so, as, a, as a developer... <laughs> More time is always good. And honestly, as a consumer, I'm excited because on this podcast, we often complain about how certain games are pushed out uh, a little too early and there there are fixes that they end up patching like within the first couple of weeks. So it's it's honestly, I'm excited that it's going to launch polished instead of just like, oh, well, we met a deadline. Yeah, that's true. And that's great. But the fact is, you know, no plan meets first contact with the enemy. So, you know, we'll have time for our polish and our bug fixes with our test team. 
and stuff. But once it gets into the wild, you find out stuff. And that's just the nature of thousands and thousands of people playing a game. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with us. That's just, that's fact. And, you know, you can't name a game that that doesn't happen to. Yeah, I know. Uh, personally with me, I played Assassin's Creed once. And in one of the levels, I ran over top of some boats on a dock. And there was just a very small corner in between the boat and the dock itself where my entire character just slipped into and it went under the map. Yep. And I absolutely. I had to restart <laughs> the game, but I realized there was like that's probably got to be a one in like 100 million yeah, chance. Yeah, we call it an edge case, yes. Yeah, you like, know, I was playing Red Dead Redemption, mm-hmm. right? And it was the single buggiest game I've ever played. And I had <laughs> and I had what we consider what we call show-stopping bugs, the kind where don't put out this game with this bug it's so bad and i hit several of them right and i'm not calling out you know the game developers (laughs) for that it's like yeah and oddly and i just muscled through it and i finished the game right because the game was so good but you know making this and something like an open world game like red dead redemption oh my god i yeah, I can imagine making one, and I don't want to make one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you actually used to work with Microsoft, correct? Oh, yeah. I was there for a dozen years. I was one of the founding members of Microsoft Game Studios. Oh, wow. Yeah, I ran, I ran two studios for Microsoft Game Studios. Oh, wow. That's yeah. crazy. So yeah. is, is it nicer? I know on um, the Harebrained Schemes website, you said you broke away from the Borg. And, yeah, know. that's about the size of it. <laughs> is it nicer working with like a smaller studio and you're able to kind of see everything as opposed to working with, you know, maybe hundreds of people? Well, it, it, think of it this way. There are pros and cons for each, mm-hmm. right? When you're working for a major corporation like Microsoft, you have the ability without exaggeration of changing the world, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Xbox, the original Xbox, when we put that out, it had an Ethernet port in the back of it. Yeah. Right? It's like, holy crap. We changed gaming with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can do multiplayer on consoles because of the Xbox, and PlayStation was, you know, was years behind that. So that's one of the benefits of working with Microsoft. Another benefit of working with Microsoft is the resources. <laughs> you know, they, hire, they are able to, with their money, hire brilliant people and put, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into marketing or whatever it is, you know? So that's really valuable. And being around such, you know, amazingly experienced people, you know, it has a profound effect on you. I spent, like I said, a dozen years there and that was my graduate school. You know what I mean? I learned, I learned a metric fuck ton of stuff at Microsoft with some really amazing people. There is also a downside, which is anytime you try and get anything done or get an idea passed, oftentimes you have to get four or five people's approval, and most people are not paid to say yes. They think of, they say no to everything because if they say yes and it fails, it makes them look bad, right? right. So saying no is way safer than saying yes and taking you know and taking a risk on anything. So that's kind of hard too. And, of course, the other thing that I felt for years and years at Microsoft because of the evaluation process that they put their talent through is you feel judged constantly and you feel defensive constantly. Like you have to defend your work and your contribution, and it's very, very challenging. And it causes people to behave in odd ways, 
So those are some of the pros and cons. And also, let's face it, I made more than twice of what I make as an independent game developer. Mm-hmm. Right? It's always yeah. a plus. <laughs> you know what? It felt pretty good. <laughs> but I would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. So hey, there you go. Um, I love working at our independent game studio. I love the fact that uh, I personally chose uh, every single person who worked here, um, you know, along with my partner, Jordan. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I love the camaraderie here. I love the open, honest, and direct conversations we can have here. I love being, uh, not having to have a committee to make a decision. I like being able to just say, we're doing this. And everybody goes, yeah, that's a good idea. We should do that. And then we just do it. <laughs> I love the speed at which we work. We have two speeds here, fast and faster. Nice. Uh, yep. you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, just, I feel like me. And being genuine is perhaps more important than anything else we could possibly list. Um, but I've seen that uh, on your LinkedIn page, actually, that you lecture at Academy of Interactive uh, Entertainment. Entertainment. Yeah, I'm on the board there. And, uh, yeah, I used to lecture there uh, once a week, four hours a week. So that, wow. that was a lot. Uh, now I just – I'm a guest speaker there. But, yeah, I'm on, I'm on their advisory board, yeah. That's oh, okay. awesome. And it's great because it's – the school seems to be specifically about designing games and uh, and different just, you know, graphics and film. Yeah, and- yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good school. You know, it's still kind of early in its development, and it's growing really nicely and uh, – you know, I hired several of my students from there. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So I guess that's an endorsement, right? Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I've hired five people out of that school so far. Oh, wow. That's, that's great awesome. to see. Yeah. And I know I personally follow a channel on YouTube, which is just, I think the school's based out of Sweden, but it's just an animation school. Oh, that's and, great. And it's just seeing, like, I, th- I think you can even see some of like the same students like following their like first project of their senior year to their final project and just yeah how fun is that it's great like just I it's... love working with uh, new game developers you know people who are in school and uh, there's an indie group here in Seattle mm-hmm. uh, and I just love meeting people sort of early in their career and, and talking to them and, and sharing some of my experience I, that's part of the coolness of the job. Yeah, I can imagine. It's, does it feel like Seattle's kind of growing like into a gaming version of Silicon Valley, like where all the tech's down in California, and then the gaming culture has moved up north? I think there's a there is a a, a lot of gaming here, and that's one of the reasons why uh, Hyper Rabbit Power Go, you know, is getting such sort of critical mass because we've got you know Bungie here, we've got Microsoft here, we've got Repub uh, or uh, sorry. Rep- people who make Republic and all of a sudden I forgot their names. We've got, you know, Wizards of the Coast who make Dungeons and Dragons. We've got the people of Paizo who make Pathfinder. We've got Lone Shark games. They do some great tabletop games. I mean, there's just a ton of people, you know, and then we've got Valve. And, yeah, you know, a big one. So, so, you know, is it a Silicon Valley type thing? I don't know, but it's more affordable than Silicon Valley, I'll tell you that. <laughs> We have a special guest joining us today, Chuck Carter, who's responsible for working on numerous games, uh, specifically uh, Myst and some of the Command & Conquer games. Uh, how are you doing, Chuck? Not too bad. Good to be here. How are you guys doing? Oh, doing great. Doing pretty good. Got a belly full of burritos, and I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Just a pizza. Nice. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> 
Awesome. Piece of pizza anyway. So. <laughs> so I guess let's first talk to you about how your experience in the game industry all began. Like, so um, is Miss the first project you ever worked on? Well, Miss was the the first actually official project I worked on uh, back in uh, nineteen. 19- 89, I saw Cyan's first game, which was called The Manhole. And it was this little black and white uh, exploration game where you kind of went down a manhole cover and went down into the water. And it was this really nicely hand-drawn sort of thing with, uh, I think Robin Miller drew it all, and he did it in McPaint. But the idea behind it was to create this world that you can kind of, you know, follow through, much like what Mist is. And after that, I designed something called The Magic Shop and another little thing called The ABC House, uh, which Broderbun at the time was interested in. And uh, it had sort of opened the eyes to Cyan, who just happened to live in the same city, Spokane, Washington, that I was living in. And um, they saw that stuff and some other 3D work and hired me from Mist. And so Mist was really the uh, start of my career, true start of my career anyway. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I'm just curious because I went to school in recent years for like some graphic design and some game design stuff. And I know that I did some 3D modeling in Blender and uh, Autodesk Maya, for instance. I'm just curious, how were you capable of make creating your renders back uh, in like the early 90s? Well, back then we had, there was a, a very limited number of 3D programs available, uh, especially on the Macintosh. There was a, uh, I think maybe four programs that I can think of off, off, off hand and uh, talk about primitive. I mean, you know, you had, you had only a lathe and extrude controls. That was really about it. Oh, wow. So you couldn't really do very much, you know, with pop, with points or faces or edges or subdivision surfaces. None of that stuff existed in the, in the low end machine, low end commercial software that was available at the time. Yeah. So we, in essence, kind of like, you know, you, 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 extrude out a bunch of shapes that were supposed to be kind of a, you know, part of an object and a bunch of lathes to make other parts of objects. And you kind of just sort of put it together and make it look like something. And that was pretty much uh, how we made mist based on that type of technology. Oh, awesome. Very minor animation tools uh, that we used to do some of the animation in mist. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was very primitive by today's standard. So, Another question I was thinking about, like just the general uh, game design of Mist. How did they approach you? Like, did they say, "Oh, we need a certain amount of renders from you that, and we need these specific ones," or did you have like a creative uh, sort of leeway to come to them with different renders and be like, how, "Is this going to fit with the game?" Well, it, the way it sort of started out was uh, we had been talking for quite a while, and then they wanted me to. Uh, you know, they were, they were saying they had this project that they wanted to do. And uh, they weren't really being real clear about what it was. They were keeping it very secret at the time. And uh, the very first day I started at the company, we did a, uh, in I think it was Chris Brandcamp, who was one of the three partners, was Rand, Robin Miller, and him, Chris. And we were at his house, and they read a walkthrough, like a text-based walkthrough of the entire game. Just. And so we had a, a pretty good idea. I had a pretty good idea of what they were looking for visually just by the way they were describing it. And they had some real loose drawings for the maps. Okay. And Robin simply assigned me uh, two of the maps and a final map and said, here, um, come up with some sketches, some ideas. And uh, pretty much from that point on, it was, uh, you know, I just did whatever I felt like doing for the most part. That's awesome. Yeah, I just know 
uh, personally for me, Mist was one of uh, one of the first games I ever really played, and it on, and I after doing some research, apparently is one of the first games on CD-ROM in general. So it's just a staple in gaming history. So that's pretty cool that you got to work on that project. Yeah, uh, a lot of people bought CD-ROM players just to play it. I mean, there were other games before Mist, obviously, but uh, Mist was the one that sort of popularized the whole CD-ROM, you know, as a game uh, delivery device more than anything else. I think at the time. Totally. Um, so then what would you say was the next, uh, stepping stone in your game industry career after Myst? Um, I went, uh, I left Cyan right after finishing up publishing Myst or when Myst went, um, uh, to Broderbund, uh, to finally, it was out on a market. I left Cyan and then I went to, uh, Westwood Studios and I worked on a series of games there, um, for about a year and a half and then kind of got out of the game industry for a little bit did some consulting for a bunch of companies, but then I came back uh, about 1998. And uh, when I came back in 1998, I was immediately put on the uh, Command and Conquer Tiberian Sun uh, game. And oh, I was nice. uh, designated as a concept, not a concept, excuse me, uh, a cinematic artist. So I, along with the rest of the cinematics teams, we basically built all the cinematics for it. Um, and then we're involved with the shooting, making the background sets that we put the actors over and, uh, so I guess that was like the next big game that I worked on right after that. Oh, cool. So then what kind of software were you utilizing for that? Was it like kind of different than like, was it an improvement, so to speak? <clears throat> oh yeah. Yeah. Right. When I, when I worked at Westwood back in 94 and 95, we were using 3d studio. It was called at the time before it was called 3 studio max or whatever yeah. it's now. Um, and it was, it was a very powerful program. You could, you know, you built everything from a polygon and built it outward. It was, pretty much how we built all of our objects. So that was like the first step in my getting out of using Macintosh-based stuff, working on PC-based software, and, and in this particular uh, 3D studio. Uh, and then when I came back, I left for a while, then I came back and um, I got really heavily uh, involved in using uh, Lightwave. There were a lot of other artists at the at the Westwood Studios who uh, used Lightwave, and there was this kind of division between the Lightwave users and the 3D studio users, 3D Max users. And so we were kind of in the lightweight crowd and, and the other guys are in the other crowd. And, and then we dabbled with Max, uh, excuse me, with Maya for a while. And uh, so it, it really just depended on the project for the most part. But uh, lightweight for the most part, then mostly Maya. I didn't get into 3D Studio Max for a while after that, actually. Okay, interesting. Um, and then I, I guess then what you're doing lately, if I'm not mistaken, you're head of Eager Games, which is its own studio now? Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm uh, basically the founder and the head of Eager Games. Uh, we're based out of Orono, Maine. Oh, great. It's funny. Uh, this interview is actually happening all thanks to alphabetagamer.com for referring uh, you guys to us on Twitter. So we're really grateful for that. And if our listeners are unfamiliar with that name, uh, you shouldn't be because we've talked about them on the show in the, in the past. But it's basically a website that features uh, all the latest upcoming indie games where you can actually play some alphas and betas and stuff, much like the name suggests. But uh, they actually featured your upcoming game, Zed, on there and mentioned a Kickstarter. Would you want to talk about that for a little? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, for one thing, Zed has been a, a game that has been in, in design production now for about uh, close to a year, and now we're in the process of full production with it. And uh, essentially, the game is just, it's about a dreamer who's dying, and he's suffering from dementia, uh, but he's still aware, aware enough to know that there's something he has to finish for his granddaughter, and he can't remember what that is. So you 
are essentially in his dreams and, and in some places in his memories uh, to help him find what it is he has to do to help him actually make this final gift for his granddaughter before he dies. And uh, you have to help him remember by kind of putting together, um, connecting all the dots, so to speak, through a series of puzzles and, and uh, you know, different types of uh, challenging areas that you have to navigate through, stuff like that. So that's pretty much what the game is about. Uh, we're trying to do it with a very, very uh, unique art style. I, I'm very inspired by a number of artists and I, as well as some of my own stuff that I like to always kind of pull into things based around some of my own dreams and things. So oh, that's okay. pretty much what, what Zed is essentially about. You know, it's, it's an odd series of worlds that you not only explore, but you have to navigate through a series of puzzles to put things together. Um, yeah, I know with the genre of like sort of point and click, like puzzle-esque or like pseudo-adventure, whatever you wish to call it, um, it was very popular after your game specifically missed it, you know, inspired so many. And for a while, it dipped, that genre dipped down a bit because all the consoles were coming out and all the shooters and FPS shooters and all that. Uh, but I've noticed that a lot of puzzle point and click adventures are coming back specifically to PC now. And one of the most notable cases I can think of is The Witness, which was Jonathan Blow's game. Right. And like, I'm wondering if this is maybe, you know, sort of a reemergence of that genre and, with Zed, maybe you can help bring it more light to it even further. Like, do you think this is kind of a, you know, the best time it could come out? I think so, because, you know, you, you really have to look back and, and, and uh, take a look at what games have been coming out over the last couple of years that, that fit within that genre. You know, I mean, you, you got Journey, which is this, this absolutely beautiful, gorgeous game, uh, you know, done by Sony. And then you've got, uh, Dear Esther. I don't know if you've heard of Dear Esther or not, oh, but. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's more of a walkabout, but it's a narrated walkabout where you're going along and the story is kind of unveiled as you go from point to point. And it's a very, very sad story, but it, it, it really draws you into the environment. And, uh, that, that's another one of those games. And then they came up with, uh, everyone's gone to the rapture after that. So, you know, and then the Stanley Parable, which is a really wonderful, fun little game, which I really like a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very similar. Again, it's, it's not necessarily 100% puzzle based. It's more, the environment's kind of stretchy and changes on you constantly. Uh, but this genre, I think it seems to be that people are looking for ways to kind of slow down a little bit. I think we're hitting it at a really good time when, you know, there's so much violence in games that I think some parents are also, and, and people are maybe looking for something that it's not, you know, like a, a little pixel scrolling side scroller or it's not a big shooter game or anything else. They want to find something that kind of fits in between that. And I think that the genre is starting to come back alive uh, because of that, that, that niche seems to be needing to be filled again. And so I think for us, it's a, it's a great time uh, to be doing this sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, obviously we're inspired by games like The Witness and, and uh, you know, there's a Talus Principle and Anna Chamber, which is really interesting. So there's a lot of games that are slowly kind of emerging in that genre, that puzzle-based exploration genre, adventure genre. And I'm, I'm thrilled that we're going to be part of that. And I hope we do something that's different enough that will set us apart from everybody else. And I really think we are. I, you know, I think that from the feedback we're getting, we're really establishing our own unique uh, identity with what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I know you worked with some of the McCrawl Hill uh, company and some of their textbook or they're the big textbook company. Right. So, yeah. And I can remember thinking back to games like Myst and all these early puzzle games I played as a child. I, you know, didn't beat them because I was about six, but you know, having that puzzle mechanic in my head and knowing how to sort through puzzles and have a visual, you know, capacity 
of like do solving things in my head definitely helped me out later in life and definitely was a critical part to my learning development at such a young age. So it's great to see games are kind of heading back towards that now with a newer generation that won't be growing up on Gears of War or, you know, God of War or all these games where you're just slaughtering everything and not really thinking. Right. Because I remember some of the, you know, standardized testing questions I had on the SATs. Like I remember thinking back when I was a kid solving some of these puzzles in games and how it, I already knew the answer because of the puzzle. Well, so, you know, it, it, that sort of game does force you to think. I mean, it's definitely critical thinking, uh, beneficial, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and my background besides doing the game stuff is you mentioned McGraw Hill. I, I co-authored a geology, a college geology textbook for them, uh, with a, a few other geologists, uh, back in 2006 and made some, you know, and worked on a geography book and a nurse science book since then as well. Um, and right now, you know, there's this part of me that loves the science part and the puzzle part, uh, that makes you think, you know, I mean, you know, we support the company by doing work for NASA and NASA keeps me probably busy for about a good third of the day and the rest of the day goes towards the game. Uh, but it does support the company, that money I make from NASA work right now. And, but, uh, the thing that's fun about NASA is I get a chance to learn something different every time. And, and to be honest, if you looked at the demo, uh, the one thing you notice in there is there's a a large kind of like a, or a small little itty bitty blue giant, you know, sun sitting in there with a star, like a big sun floating over the top of it. And I love to bring the science stuff into whatever I'm working on because I think it adds a little extra dimension to things. It may be something very subtle. In most cases, it will be very subtle, but there will be some clues that will require a little bit of, you know, obviously all clues and puzzles require critical thinking, but we want to really make sure that some of this stuff is also based in some of uh, the science stuff that I'm doing as well. You worked on Ultimate Alliance 2, right, for Marvel? Yes. How is that? Because I remember, I remember that the storyline, at least for that, mostly focused around the Civil War, which is now super popular because of the movie. And I remember thinking, I can't afford all those books. I'm just going to play the game and get the story from that. And it was great. Uh, yeah, I, I started out when I, when I worked at, uh, I took a job of Vicarious Visions. That was the first game I started working on there. Uh, within about three weeks after being there, um, they had a need. They were, they were changing the way they managed the teams, uh, managing the studio. And with the, you know, I came in with a lot of experience having been in the industry for quite a while. They asked if I would be art group manager. And, uh, basically that entailed managing all the artists in the company. And at the time there was like 75 artists, I think that were working there. Wow. And so I started doing it. Then we had to bring somebody else on to help out. That's just too many artists to keep track of for, you know, quarterly reviews and all the other stuff that goes along with managing a group of people like that. Uh, so between the two of us, we, I took about 35, 40 of the people and then Bob and took the other, the rest of them. Um, but doing the work for that game when I had a chance to do it, I mean, it was, it was amazing. Uh, the art director, um, that was, uh, on the game was, uh, came up with this, it was kind of counterintuitive for a lot of people at first, but one of the things he did with all the superhero costumes, um, all the Marvel costumes was to make them look like real cloth to make them, you know, not skin tight, you know, leotards and everything mm-hmm. else. He made a conscious decision to change up how the art direction was done with the costumes. And it was amazing. It was really, really good. And eventually a lot of those ideas and designs got picked up. I think in some of the Marvel movies. And, um, you know, I think so. I think the way that, uh, that, 
that he designed all that and that the way the game carried it out, it, it helped establish a look and feel that was carried through, I think, in not only the rest of the games, but also in, in the movie uh, world because they started going through trying to make things less tight, I guess, you know, and plasticky looking. But um, uh, also just with working with the artists on the team, there were some really phenomenal artists that worked on the team. And, and uh, you know, we had a great concept artist and, and working with uh, uh, all the developers and, and then also our, our, you know, our special effects team on there. I mean, if you remember all the different powers everybody had, oh, we yeah. were able to combine powers between two characters, you know. Oh, oh wow. yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that so awesome. and and so each time you combine a power like like the human torch and and uh, any number of other characters, you know, creating a fire tornado or whatever they were creating, mm-hmm. uh, you had to think uh, think all that had to be planned out ahead of time, and so the design process of that was very very uh, time consuming, and uh, there's a huge number of designers on a team, people design that were just designing uh, combinations of powers and how they would actually work. And so that that was another aspect of working on that game that was very cool. I uh, was seeing how all that stuff was put together finally towards the end. It was yeah, a good project. Yeah, yeah. I always remember the gameplay was kind of like a uh, bird's eye view, sort of like from above. You controlled like four heroes at a time, right? And I remember it was one of the few games I actually got my dad to play because it was co-op. Uh-huh. And I was always astonished by all the costume designs and how well it looked because it wasn't just like painted onto them; it was actual like, clothing. And I was always a little disappointed because majority of the gameplay is you're way above the characters you're playing. So you couldn't see them too well, like not all the details, except when you change the costumes. Right, right. But it did look great. Yeah, it was It was just, I mean, the environments were beautiful too. I mean, I thought they did an excellent job in the environments. You mm-hmm. know, and part of my job was assigning artists and, and uh, into each project. So, you know, when they needed new artists or new equipment and things like that, I made sure they got it. I wasn't doing the art then, but you know, I got a chance to help at least make sure that they had what they needed. I guess let's uh, let's wrap this episode up with a, a question that I ask most of the game developers we have on our show. But what would your best advice be for someone getting into the game industry? Maybe even someone considering, oh, I might start my own company or studio. Uh, what would you say to those people? Well, if you're getting into the industry you know, right out of high school or if you've been in college a year or two and you want to get into the game industry, you first of all have to figure out what do you want to do in the game industry? You know, I hear so often, oh, I want to get into the game industry from all these kids. And what do you want to do? Oh, I just want to make games. You know, well, there's a lot to making a game. There's a lot of things that go into it. Do you want to be an artist? Do you want to be a programmer? Do you want to be a designer? You know, do you want to be a producer? Uh, it doesn't really matter, but every... You know, those these various disciplines take a lot of time to learn how to do every one of them and a lot of time to learn how to do them well. And I would just recommend that you pick something, you focus on one aspect of games that you like, and then you look to colleges that may offer classes or, or courses in that or a curriculum based around that. I mean, like the Ringling School or Savannah College of Art and Design, Pittsburgh, uh, I guess, uh, University of Vermont and, and Burlington, University of Southern New Hampshire. All these schools have game curriculum uh, programs there. So find out what it is you want to do and then make a decision and then just look for a school that's going to give you the best opportunity to do that. Now, if you can't afford school, you you can also start your own company. And I recommend uh, a lot of times when students come up to me that if, you know, I can't find a a game company here in Maine, you know, and I I can't leave the state, but how how do I work in the industry? And I say, well, you know, get together some people that you trust and that you like. And, and if you guys are all gamers, 
start thinking about a game yourself, something, you know, what would you want to play? What would your game look like? And to think about it and map it out, get a big whiteboard, start drawing out ideas, you know, start figuring out a mechanic or the gameplay. Is it a scroller? Is it a first-person shooter? Is it a is it a walkabout, you know, or is it first-person, third-person, tower defense? I mean, think of what it is that you like to do and then design a game based around that. Find an artist if you're a designer or a programmer, somebody who can actually translate what you guys are thinking into something tangible that you can actually use. Because no one's going to sell a game that looks like crap. You know, I mean, you, you can have a really awesome game. And there might be some games that will, if they're not the artist and the best. But people are visually oriented. So you need a good, strong, you know, at least a, a good sense of art. You know, somebody has to be a fairly decent artist to do it, animators, whatever. So that would be my advice. And honestly, starting your own game company um, with the software nowadays, it's almost all free, you know, at least to start off. They start making money when, like, on Unreal, for instance, you know, we use that for everything. And and Unreal uh, will take 5% of what we make once we sell, I think, 100,000 units. So that's that's really good. It's worth the investment in us and giving them 5% because their software is allowing us to make our game. Unity is another one. Uh, Valve has, you know, uh, I mean, there's just there's so many different engines out there that you can use to do that. So all you need are ideas, and the engines are there. You come up with an idea and organize it and work together with a, a small team of friends, that's probably the best way to go. And then there are games that people are doing by themselves, too, that are pretty amazing. So just, you know, you have to have a passion for it, though. You have to have a passion for creating. You know, if you don't have that passion to create and don't have the passion to put the long hours in, uh, you know, you're never going to be successful because it does take a lot of time. And uh, there is a bit of sacrifice sometimes in your personal life if you're trying to really get something done, you know, that works well, that's going to be successful. Oh, such words of wisdom. Thank you so much for that. But seriously, that was uh, an amazing summary of uh, advice and I think extremely valuable to some of our listeners. Well, great. All right, Brent, what did you think Sorry. of that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's how we're bringing it in. Because you did this to me in the beginning. Hey, you want to keep that one? That's fine. <laughs> That belch was brought to you by Fizco Seltzer, <laughs> cola flavored. Oh man, that was an early <sighs> on joke in the podcast when we would always joke about our sponsors. But like that was just us being noobs to the whole podcasting I would, scene. I would love if someone actually went to any of those websites and entered in like like pa- uh, coupon code ABTS to see if they got a coupon. It's like, hey, why is it not working? You're like, do you really think we got sponsors? No, not. Do you at really all. think this dumb show's got sponsorship money? <laughs> Yeah, um, we've lost money, but let's continue. <laughs> <laughs> we this has this podcast has cost us more money than it's ever gained us. Exactly. Uh, but yes, the, the interviews with uh, Mitch Gettleman and Chuck Carter. Yeah, Mitch Gettleman. I mean, God, both of these guys are super impressive with their resumes and all the stuff oh, they've yeah. accomplished. And this episode like takes us from coast to coast. We have Mitch out in Washington oh, right. and Chuck in Maine. It's really cool. Um, I was really stoked to listen back on these. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think we asked some pretty cool questions and they really gave us some cool answers. I, just, I did like how quick Chuck was willing to play along with the, my main question of like, is it creepy living up in Maine knowing Stephen King's around any corner? He's like, yeah, he'll just pop out and grab you into the nether sphere. It's like, yeah, it's, it, the guy's everywhere. Well, um, it's funny how some of the topics back then are topical now. So, like, um, yeah, Mitch was talking back. about how, like, 
certain games, like when he was put it, putting them out, like if there was a, a bug in it on day one, like that was considered a, pa- a failure because you have to put out a patch and stuff. And he's like, it's like, wow, think about, well, yeah, it, it, gaming evolves, obviously, as games get more complex. And that's actually yeah, just something how topical I, it is right now. I want to mention that this is as of the day of us recording this news, Like an hour ago. Literally, they pulled Cyberpunk 2077 from the PlayStation Store because to, so many people were refunding it. And now some people are speculating like, oh, is this going to be like a PT situation? Probably not. It's probably coming no. back, but they will only re-release it once it's like more stable and people are... Mo- least likely to refund it it's just yeah. unbelievable that yeah uh what he was talking about is very relevant today <laughs> yeah especially right now yeah um but their uh harebrained schemes is always like pretty good with their stuff so it's they're always you know making sure the uh you know stuff's worked out and they play test a ton of it it's it's interesting to see with an indie company like them but it's also you know, you always think of an indie team with games or movies or anything where it's like, oh, it's just like five guys in a cubicle or, you know, an office building or somewhere. But this is actually like a big, it's a pretty big indie company for everybody oh, yeah. like in the game field. Um, just listening back to him talk about Necropolis kind of has me itching to go back and play because like I had like 50 some hours in it. That's a fun game, especially for, um, it's a minimalist 3D roguelike. So I just like the style of it and the color palette of it. Um, but then, like we were talking about in the clip, it's also co-op. So it's just yeah. a fun game to just jump in with a friend. I know we played it a bit back in the day. Yeah. Um, so it's fun to just, like, jump in, fight against the hordes, you know, get the different loot and stuff. And with the 3D environment, you can, like, kind of cheese some stuff a little more with the, like, environmental physics and stuff rather than, like, a top-down, you know, Binding of Isaac dungeon crawler. Oh, for sure. And I remember at the very beginning of that, like, I hyped that game up so much. I'm like, this is going to be the best game of the year. And I think to myself, I probably meant to say best indie game of the year, but I also, I, it doesn't really matter at this You're point. You're not but, one for hyperball, dog. Yeah, you no, never exaggerate. I very much did at that point. But no, I, the game is fantastic. And yeah, even to this oh, day, yeah. it's available on PS4. and P- Well, it's available on PS5. For PS4? Ah, God, it's confusing. It's weird with console. It's on PC, at least, and it's a fun game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. $30, I think. So go support them to this day. Uh, Oh, yeah. Great studio. Shadowrun, in case you want a fun, uh, functioning, sci-fi, dystopian future game that uh, it's a little less buggy than maybe the, you know, big topical one right now. We won't name names. Um, But I've actually seen, uh, speaking of relevant, Shadowrun, I saw there's a big group of people playing Shadow... uh, playing uh, a shadow run roleplay server in vr like for vr chat and stuff and people are like getting custom models made of shadow run characters and stuff and it's crazy to see it like just evolving into the next form you know four years later i mean shadow runs always prevalent it's a huge franchise but it's cool to see it taking the next step even if uh, harebrained schemes themselves is not directly involved Right. My favorite uh, thing about Mitch is that he has the perspective of having worked for Microsoft and having his own indie studio. So that was really cool to hear from him, uh, his uh, opinions on that. And he also like lectures at the school and stuff for game design and stuff. So he's got a lot of lot of experience and a lot of different perspectives. And uh, it's always great to see. And he's also with Hyper RPG, which is like, I don't know what you call them, like an entertainment company feels sleazy to call it that. But, you know, yes. they rival, like, Geek and Sundry, where they're just, like, a bunch of people making content, especially, like, specific to video games and tabletop RPGs and stuff. And, you know, he's even involved. I think uh, he's on one of the roleplay shows and stuff with the games. So it's yeah. cool to see. 
they're on Twitch. Go give them a follow. Um, and then we went over to Chuck Carter. Uh, that guy's also super interesting. Works for fucking oh, NASA yeah. and shit. Like, <laughs> I was like, here's blown a away. wild out of nowhere question for you, Chuck. Did you ever make an inside of a black hole? Something super interesting. Yes. Yes. Oh, oh my god. Okay. Cool. Well, that's the thing. There's <laughs> you gotta go back and listen to these episodes in full because a, a bunch of stuff was cut out. But one of the things yeah. during the uh, Chuck Carter episode that didn't make this episode was us talking about like I can't wait for No Man's Sky. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was like, oh man, it that was it funny. has bounced back more than than its initial launch. So for sure, like another topical game. Hopefully, the launch is a, you know isn't a clear indicator of how it'll develop once it gives more time to. Uh, grow true uh, so we'll see uh but yeah he's definitely a big environmental like world like for games big environmental artist uh stuff and um i i still say the chuck Carter interview is probably one of my favorites just because i was the <laughs> as you can tell with that quality professional intro i gave oh the burrito interview. phenomenal yeah it was probably one of the ones i was the least prepared for and i was the most entertained by being in it like not even just listening to it but just talking to him for sure. Uh, both him and Mitch were just very easy to talk to, which is great for a podcast and someone who's bad at hosting one. Yeah, especially um, us nervous boys. <laughs> but they also were just easy. They were easy to talk to, but they also just had like him also just a wealth of experience and not even just with video games, but just with all different kinds of arts and you know, media and companies he's worked with. Um, I know recently at the Game Awards, which was like, I think last week as of, as of us recording this, uh, they announced they're doing Mist in VR. So I'm curious if he's being brought back on board to work with them on that. Well, I would sure hope so, because... I hope so, yeah. I know that was another thing I don't think that made it on this episode, but he did talk about how the game they were developing, Zed, was also available in VR, and uh, they were trying it out on Vive and Oculus and all of that. So that was, what, four years ago now? So yeah, Uh, yeah. he has some VR experience. I I sure hope they would have him involved. Yeah, and especially games that were, you know, as dynamic environmentally as like mist and zed um be, translating that from like one perspective game of mist to now being in a 3d world where the player can explore the whole environment and walk around and see stuff from every angle like that's gotta take some extra work like oh, that yeah. can't be easy oh for so, sure the more experience with something like that the better i'm sure and I love how we got the shout out Alpha Beta Gamer in there. Oh man, what mm-hmm. a website and how we have a relationship <laughs> with them. They're the reason that interview even happened. It's yeah, just it's yeah. crazy. What a world. I that's still surprising when someone's like, Hey, like what about this guy? It's like, wait, people listen to our podcast? What's right. this? <laughs> we don't know who you are. You listen to this? You're we not love you correct. for listening. Thank you guys for that. <laughs> All right. Well that's probably gonna do for this one. Or did you have anything else you wanted to add real quick? Uh, real quick, I'll just say, I uh, even after the years of uh, inter- or you know since interviewing uh, Chuck, I'd still agree when he says uh, people are looking for something to slow down with, um, because I feel like that's very much the case with people being burnt out on the just these run and gun shooter based cover games, and are really taking interest on these small indie games. And a reason some of them are blowing up so much is because it's like ah, I can just like sit down and relax with this game and do it at my own pace and do these puzzles, and it's essentially just. Our morning crossword that like our grandparents would do in the morning paper and stuff like yeah but, like for us it's video games because I know certainly Outer Wilds was very much that experience for me of just like it's a magic it's an alien world I'm going to these different planets and just doing these puzzles and you know it could take me 13 hours it could take me 30 hours but you know do it at your own pace and it's it was very pleasant and fun so yeah I I think he's very much onto something and I think that trend is still ongoing today oh definitely. 
Well, yeah, it was cool looking back on those things. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. We're going to wrap this one up and do some plugs. Bren, where can our listeners find you and your other podcast? You can find me on Twitter at ABTSBrendan. It's mostly me promoting this and my other podcast, Are We There Yet? W-E-E-P. It's an anime podcast where we watch three episodes of an anime and or a movie to give it a quick recap, give our opinions on it, and it's usually a good way to decide if, you know, this anime would be a good, you know, intro if, you know, you're wanting to get into the genre, the medium, or, you know, for a first-time viewer. A lot of them are bad. Like, a lot of them are real bad. Did you guys do Bleach yet? Yeah, we did Bleach, Doug. Oh, I forgot. I got put on a leash for Bleach. I could only limit my rants to, like, Three-minute increments. Well, that's smart. Okay, good. Yeah, they they tied me down for that one and force-fed me bleach. <laughs> I, I did it against my will, but I think that was our hundredth and one episode. I need to revisit that. I probably listened to it back then, but uh, okay. Now I, I know I need to listen to that. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, if you want just weeb rants, like, there's some episodes we just go off. So there's plenty in there. Very cool. And listener, if you like our show, give us a like, follow, subscribe. We're findable at all the places at ABT Silence, especially twitch.tv slash ABT Silence, where I'm streaming a variety of games, uh, playing a lot of Poker Club, Fall Guys, Rocket League, all sorts of shit, Demon Souls. Uh, definitely come hang out, drop a follow, and hang in chat. And I have a record label. It's MissedOutRecords.com. Got all sorts of vinyl cassettes available there. Go check out the bands that I am uh, releasing music for. And that's going to do it for this week. We'll be back on Monday with the last episode of this year, I think. All right. No, no, no. We'll have another bonus episode, too. Yes, two more coming. But uh, yeah. See you guys next time. See you.